Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. What are some of the key takeaways from yesterday's throne speech? Well, we'll get into that and discuss those. The COVID-19 pandemic and more recently the BC floods have warped supply chains around the world, causing product shortages and pushing up prices. How have those disruptions affected Canadian industries and Canadian consumers? We'll get into that as well. And Frederick Dimash, the director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management, joins us to discuss Canadians' fear of traveling and the need to put travel risks into perspective. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday was a throne speech in Parliament Hill, and uh, parliamentarians gathered. Well, some of them did, because obviously there's still social distancing going on uh, because of COVID. Uh, the speech from the throne delivered by Governor General Mary Simon, and as Global's chief political correspondent David Aiken reports, this was a speech that both made history and repeated history. A first for Canada, a speech from the throne read by an Indigenous Governor-General in French, English, and Inuktitut. But it repeated themes from past Trudeau government speeches, a familiar call for bold action. This is the moment for parliamentarians to work together to get big things done and shape a better future for our kids. Repeated promises to tackle housing affordability, childcare, and a warming planet. This is the moment for bolder climate action. A renewed vow first made in 2015 to put the relationship with Indigenous peoples at the heart of everything it does. Reconciliation requires a whole-of-government approach, breaking down barriers and rethinking how to accelerate our work. With few details on how it will do all that, the opposition quickly found fault with the government's agenda. Today we heard more of the same from the Trudeau government. What we didn't hear was a plan for the economy, a plan to tackle the cost of living crisis. They can't take our support for granted, and this isn't a throne speech that looks like they want to work together. This is a government that is trying to give itself the sense of movement, of action. It promised accelerated work on climate change, accelerated work on reconciliation. It even promised a housing accelerator fund. But the problem with this government is, its critics have often found that it is moving too slowly. And so that will be the challenge starting tomorrow. Can the Trudeau government transform itself to match the pace promised in the speech from the throne? David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa. Thanks, David. Uh, well, there is the challenge. We talked about that on my uh, morning commentary at A10 on CHML. Uh, you know, can they get the move the, the, this, this whole agenda moving as quickly as they need to in situations like this. Uh, I want to bring uh, Daniel Bailand into the conversation. Uh, Daniel, of course, is the director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for the time on the day after the throne speech. Glad you could join us today. Thanks for the invitation. Good morning. As, uh, as our friend uh, David Aiken uh, told us from Global News there, it seems as if there was a lot of cutting and pasting from previous throne speeches uh, as, as you looked at some of the content on here. Uh, but th- and I understand that, you know, they're obviously trying to touch stones here with some of the opposition parties to get some action on here. Uh, the reaction they got, though, from both Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Singh is, uh, hey, this is the same old, same old. How, how does the government get over that and try to move their agenda forward when it looks like the opposition parties are not really on side and ready to play ball with them here? Well, I think that the Bloc said that they will, uh, Mr. Blanchet said that they, 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 they will uh, support the government uh, on a confidence vote uh, about the Trump speech, so that, you know, there is no uncertainty about the fact that this government will will survive a confidence vote uh, in the near future. Uh, But yes, in terms of getting things done beyond surviving as a a minority government, I I think that there are many challenges. 
Um, I do think that they will collaborate with the NDP on, on some uh, uh, key uh, pieces of legislation regarding sick leave, for example. So, you know, I, I, I do think that they will get things done. But the, the Trump speech itself, you know, is is rather shallow. I mean, it's, it's, it's really repetitive if you compare to the two previous Trump speeches, but it's not surprising because it's a third Trump speech that we have in three years, and it's the same government, the same prime minister. Uh, so um, I do think that it's, you know, Trump speeches are always vague, but this one is, is extremely vague, and I think it's probably done on purpose uh, to uh, allow the flexibility that go- government needs to to bargain with uh, opposition parties on key pieces of legislation, but you know a lot of this thing that we saw yesterday in terms of the NDP and and to a lesser extent the the conservatives is, is political theater, right? Uh, mm-hmm. This government is likely to survive for quite a bit of time, and they are likely to get some things done because Canadians expect parties to collaborate in the context of a minority parliament. And the last parliament was quite successful, especially during the, the first few months of the pandemic, to get things done for Canadians. But uh, the Trump speech itself is, you know, the, the main novelty was just the person who delivered the speech uh, and the fact that it was delivered in, in three languages, um, including in the indigenous language, Inuktitut. But in terms of content, you know, uh, there was absolutely no surprise or nothing, nothing bold in there. And, and I guess maybe our expectations might have been unrealistically high. Uh, as you remember, the day before, uh, the House leader, um, Mark Holland, of course, was speaking to the media. And, and he basically said, look, this is an aggressive agenda. We want to get some things done even before the end of the calendar year uh, to kind of set a precedent here that we're in motion. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of action items in, in, the, in the throne speech yesterday, were there? No, exactly. So that's why I say it's, 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 it's quite vague, even maybe uh, worse than usual, because, again, a Trump speech is not expected. To, it's not like a budget, you know, or a budget speech or something that with a lot of numbers in it and concrete, you know, actions. Uh, it, it, it's really a statement about the agenda of the government. But when you read the speech, I mean, I listened to it yesterday and then I went back to read it this morning. It's quite short. People can find it, you know, on the government's website. And, mm-hmm. and you know, there are a lot of um, uh, very broad uh, statements, but again, uh, very little detail. And, and even there is no sense there is really an overarching strategy here. So a lot of uh, items that are listed and some references to economic recovery as we exit the, the, the pandemic and, and so forth. A reconciliation, the environment. So these are the themes from, you know, the last liberal platform and the one they had in 2019. Uh, but it's our, but again, it's, it's the statements are sometimes so vague. Uh, I mean, people have commented, for example, on foreign policy where it's, it's things like, you know, we will always stand up for a brighter future for all. People have quoted this as an example of this kind of rhetoric that, you know, doesn't tell us much. Well, yeah, I, I, China was never mentioned, but they did talk about, uh, what did they say, the rise of authoritarianism and uh, great power competition. I mean, that's obviously a reference, I would think, to, to China and what's going on there. But I think what some people were looking for on that file uh, was, hey, how about some word about what the government's going to do about 5G? I mean, Huawei's still hanging around here, and the government hasn't yeah. given a firm decision on that. Uh, I think a lot of people were expecting to hear something of that nature. And, and again, I don't think it was even mentioned. No. So, uh, again, it's, but maybe, as you said, our expectations were too high. But after, you, you know, we were basically um, forced to go through this, uh, you know, election campaign that very few people actually wanted, 
and that it led to you know results that were very similar to what we had in 2019. People will think, well, maybe we, they will tell us something new or something really uh, powerful to justify what they did, which is you know having all the, the, this campaign and maybe trying to really put forward something uh, bold. But uh, no, it's uh, it's very uh, it's very carefully written and uh, and and often really vague. Well, and I know there was a focus on on climate change and the environment, and I, we expected that obviously because of some of the things that have gone on in the last six months. And as you say, a lot of the things they talked about, they were really uh, just repeats of what they talked about in 2019. But very few things in the way of specifics about what they were going to handle here. And I, I, I get your point. You're absolutely right, Daniel. The throne speeches are usually big because it's it's the, the you know the meat on the bone is usually when the the, the you know the budget is done or you know there are legislative pieces that are introduced into the house for debate and i guess we're not there yet but you know when you come to climate change and we come to some of those other issues uh you know what are going to do about the pipeline what's going to happen there with line five what's going to happen uh with uh, with you know the, what's happening out in the west coast right now you, you would have liked to think that there were some 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 tidbits there that those people could grasp onto and say oh, at least we know where the government's going on here but i suppose you have to balance that as you mentioned uh with what is going to happen with the NDP and the bloc is, let's face it, the, the support that they're hoping to get uh, in this parliament is going to come from those two parties, or at least one of them anyway, on, depending on the item. And and do they need some wiggle room there to be able to negotiate with those two, which is why they were so vague to, yesterday? Yes, I, I do think it's the case. Now, the conservatives, the, you know, they, they, they are struggling internally with, you know, the leadership issue. And, and I, I, don't, I don't think that they are, you know... Um, they are in a hurry to have uh, elections. <laughs> None of the parties are. So we will. I think they will find a way to uh, to uh, to keep keep this liberal boat afloat for quite a bit of time. But the question is to know what they will actually accomplish. There are some low hanging fruits. Our men- I mentioned, um, you know, conversion therapy. Well, I didn't mention that, but conversion therapy. That's something that should be relatively easy to get done with the support of. Uh, uh, the NDP and probably the bloc and, and you know, federal uh, sick uh, leave legislation yeah. that should be relatively easy to pass. But I'm not sure we'll be able to actually get things done before the, the holiday break as the, the liberals want to. You know, it's the opposition is, is asked, they have to, you know, uh, ask tough questions and, and, you know, the government won't get a free pass on most of these bills, most of these proposals. And, you know, uh, the mandate letters that the, each the minister should receive to have the clear agenda for each department, they haven't been, uh, you know, uh, forwarded to them yet. So, so that's, a, you know, the, the, the government's agenda is still rather vague. Without these mandate letters, uh, we still a bit are in the dark about what the true priorities are for each of the departments uh, on the legislative front and beyond. And so I, I, I think that it's a rather slow process. It took them quite a while to, uh, first of all, um, have a new liberal uh, cabinet. And, and it took them a while, of course, to to have the start of the, the, the new parliament. And, and now the, the, these mandate letters are, are also uh, taking a lot of time to... Uh, to get done. And, and so um, it, it's a bit worrying. Let me ask you, I've got a minute or so left here. The, the opposition reaction, as you said, was as expected. Mr. O'Toole, Mr. Singh both said, look, we want more. 
Uh, we're looking for more items. But the, the conservatives also yesterday, uh, Danielle, as you know, uh, raised the issue about vaccinations within the, the commons and MPs, uh, basically suggesting that the Board of Internal Economy a decision, uh, what they called it anyway, a breach of the ancient privileges of the House. And uh, it seems as if they want to challenge this once again. Uh, is there any political upside for these guys to keep this issue alive? No, not not externally in terms of the public. I think that the, uh, we know where the public uh, stands on vaccination, and I think that uh, what what the conservatives are are doing is really driven by internal uh, tensions within the party. But I think when you look at the the broader public, I think what they are doing is uh, is, uh, is is really shooting themselves in, in the foot. And the more they talk about this and the more this thing drags on, the more it will be difficult to, you know, move on and, and, and talk about something else. Because this is something that I think hurt them during the campaign, all the issue of vaccination. Um, and I think this is still hurting them in the polls. They're not doing very well in the polls post-election, the, the conservatives. And, and this whole issue of vaccination, including vaccination for MPs, is, is not something that... Um, that uh, is uh, really uh, helping them with the public. Well, especially because, and I'll go back to uh, Government House Leader Mark Holland's comments the day before, he was actually questioning uh, the number of court conservatives that may have exemptions. We don't even know those numbers yet uh, as to who's been vaccinated and who's uh, sitting there because of an exemption. But uh, he seemed to be challenging them, say, if you guys want to get down this road, we'll take you on the, on this fight. Uh, but I think you're you're bang on with this, Daniel. I don't think the Canadian public cares. I think they say, look, we, we elected you guys to do other things just stop arguing about petty little things if you're not vaccinated then don't come that's all there is to it so uh, I, i'm surprised that the conservatives are really hanging on to this bone i don't see the upside to it but i guess that's something we're going to determine in the uh, the days ahead uh, always a, a pleasure uh, to get your perspective on on these very key issues daniel thank you so much for the time today you're most welcome have a wonderful day Great talking with you again. Daniel Bailon, the uh, director of the McGill Institute for Study of Canada, with uh, his uh, take on what went on with the budget speech and the throne speech, I should say. Uh, the budget speech is not going to come until probably sometime in the, the new year. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about uh, you as a consumer and, and purchasing power and, and what we all want to do. We keep talking about wanting to be part of the economic recovery uh, there's got to be product on the shelf for us to buy. And I know some people have some very grave concerns about that. Uh, and uh, we need to, to get the facts here as, and not just the speculation on this. I know historic supply chain snags touch just about every industry, especially because of what's happened uh, with the pandemic and with even with things like perishable food items. Well, Global News Senior Business Correspondent Anne Gaviola has more in the latest story of the short supply series that Global's been running. Here's her latest report. Supply chain crunches have been unfolding for months now with the pandemic and other events to blame. And recent catastrophic events happening in BC are having a ripple effect to make matters even worse. Now, this time of year, we shift to importing most fruits and vegetables, whether that's from the US and Mexico or Southern America, all of it impacted by labor shortages, chaos at ports on the Western and Eastern seaboard, and a truck driver shortage. That means some fruits and veggies arrive spoiled or they don't last as long by the time they get to you. Now, some importers are flying in fresh produce to get around this, but that drives up costs too. So the good news is that widespread shortages for fresh produce are not expected. But food economists say seasonal food price spikes that happened pre-COVID will be even bigger. Anne Gaviola, Global News. So that's that's the food element of things, but there's so much else going on. I mean, let's face it, we're heading into what most retailers are hoping 
is going to be a very productive purchasing season. I mean, getting into the Christmas season and 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 the gifts and and the purchases that we usually make. How's that going to be impacted? To talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Sabel Ray, who is a professor at the DeSoto Faculty of Management and academic director at the Bensonian School of Retail Management with uh, McGill University. A uh, professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you about what we see and, and, and the reality here, Professor, if we could. Uh, you know, we talked about supply chain, and, and I guess that's kind of an abstract thing to an awful lot of us, unless you're in the business of trying to get products uh, from where they're being manufactured to where they are. Uh, we've seen some of the pictures of what's going on in the West Coast right now, and uh, long before they had the flooding, uh, there were some concerns about this. And now, of course, we're seeing highways are being closed. Uh, trucks and, and other uh, mem- means of transportation to get goods have been basically shut down for the last little while. What is that doing to that very important supply chain, Professor? Yeah, so um, as most of us know, that uh, the issue is that a lot of the products on our shelves, um, they originate in East Asia. And uh, because they originate in East Asia, they are coming by, and uh, because uh, shipping, uh, marine transportation is, uh, the cheapest form of transportation. So many of them come through ship and they get uh, unloaded in uh, uh, Vancouver uh, or the Western Post. And then they come through truck uh, throughout the country. And that, that when the Vancouver Port uh, and that, uh, the West Coast Ports, uh, the same thing in US, uh, LA Port, what we are seeing with the LA Port, when they have problems, that creates a huge bottleneck for the whole supply chain. So... Uh, that, that is the biggest issue that most many of our products are originating in East Asia, whose entry point is are the West Coast ports, uh, both for Canada as, as well as for U.S. And, and we saw President Biden respond to that, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago, Professor, when yes, uh, exactly. he actually earmarked some federal LNC. funds to, yeah, to get more people to working at those ports to get the, the, to get the product off the ships. Yes, yeah, so uh, LA Port, uh, uh, they have uh, done that. It will be open 24-7 because there was a huge, huge backlog backlog of ships, which normally there is normally a waiting of only one ship. At one point of time, uh, it went more than 100 ships were waiting to get uh, unloaded, uh, though I think it has come down a bit uh, because of those, some of the uh, actions taken. But it's still quite, uh, quite a bit uh, long uh, waiting time for the uh, unloading. Okay, so that's that's one of the concerns and one of the tie-ups. Uh, and I would imagine the, the, the horrendous weather that they've had in British Columbia over the yeah. last couple of days, the flooding, has only made that situation worse. Absolutely, because the thing is that, uh, uh, so one, you know, there was already a problem in the ports because of the COVID restrictions and because of the manufacturing prog- problems, because it was very costly to get containers on the ships. Those were the problems. But because of the flooding, now there is another problem that you cannot unload or you cannot take it out uh, through the truck. So the, the issue of the transportation inland has become a big, big issue that even if the ships are coming to the port, you cannot unload them and you cannot take them out. So that's the bigger, uh, that's another, which is only adding to the whole bottleneck issue in the port. And now I hear that today they are uh, projecting, uh, 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 they are predicting even more bad weather uh, uh, mm-hmm. in that area for the next two, three days. So it, it will only go on. Maybe you could uh, offer some perspective here, uh, Professor. Uh, we know that the, that the pandemic and, and, frankly, even the lockdowns uh, have, have exacerbated uh, existing problems. Before the pandemic, let's go back a couple of years, uh, was the supply chain working? Was the system working efficiently at that time? 
some of the problems that we are seeing is because the supply chains were working so efficiently and in order to reduce cost, uh, most of the companies were making the supply chains extremely efficient by keeping a very low level of inventory. And the problem with that was as long as the systems were okay, as long as the shocks to the system were small, there was no problem. But when the shocks to the system were big and many of the shocks are still we are talking about uh, uh, weather, but it is still somewhat uh, the sh- biggest shock is still the pandemic, which created the problem in terms of the labor shortages, in terms of the container issues, those. And so that when this whole uh, pandemic uh, created problem in the supply side, as well as the demand went up, supply went uh, went down, and that created the huge problem in the supply chain. So the uh, it was working quite okay before the pandemic, but the problem was that it was, in order to keep the cost low, the, the, the slack in the supply chain was extremely small. And whenever there was a, there's a huge amount of uh, shock to the system in the form of the pandemic, uh, the supply chains broke down. And, and I guess I've talked to some retailers that just echoed exactly what you just said. Uh, you know, they don't like to have things in warehouses because they said that's not making us any money until it's actually yeah. on the store floor and selling. So you're right. They reduced uh, inventory in many of the uh, the factories and the warehouses. Uh, and then all of a sudden they got caught flat. Now, you know, I guess in those days, Professor, I guess I would say, well, you know, if, if Bill wants to buy that and we don't have it, I can order. It'll be here in three or four days anyway because the supply chain's working. But as soon as that gets cut off, uh, all of a sudden the warehouses get empty because people have, the, as you say, the demands increase and there's nothing coming in. Absolutely. And that's, and so the demand has gone up because people were, uh, especially during the pandemic or through the pandemic, maybe it has uh, come down in the last two, three months a bit, but uh, people were uh, not spending so much in service because they were not able to go to the restaurant. They were, they were not able to uh, go to the movies and so on. The service industry, they were not able to spend money on service travel and so on. So they were spending a lot in products. So the demand for the products went up, whether it is electronic or furniture or so on. And because the products, the demand went up and the supply, both in terms of production as well as transportation, both of them were uh, impacted. The supply went down, demand went up, and obviously the supply chains broke down. Professor, let's go a little further down uh, to the beginnings of that supply chain. And let's talk about at the source. Uh, because my understanding is that's also a concern that uh, that when the pandemic hit and when the lockdown started, uh, that an awful lot of these companies uh, basically reduced production because they figured we can't sell this stuff. Uh, so we're not going to make 5,000 units per day as they used to. Maybe we'll make 1,000. Maybe we won't make any. Uh, and, of course, people get laid off. How quickly can you recover and get back up to full speed in a situation like that? Uh, in some of the industries, uh, it is perhaps not that problematic. But in some of the industries, it is uh, really uh, problematic. To get some of the uh, remember, in some of the countries, uh, many of these laborers were coming from villages to the cities to work. So when they get laid off, they are going back to their villages. Now you have to again bring them back. So it takes time. So it's not like a uh, on-off switch, which uh, that you put it on. It takes time, and that's the whole problem. The the production and the, uh, the, uh, the capacity increase will take time to come up to the pre-pandemic level. And there are still some restrictions. So one of the countries that we uh, talk about, uh, we, we tend to talk a lot about China, but many of the goods are now produced in places like Vietnam and so on. So Vietnam were having, because of the COVID restrictions, they were having problems until recently, though I heard in the last two, three weeks, things are uh, beginning to improve. But 
but they were having problems because there uh, the, there was a labor shortage and there was pandemic restrictions still in Vietnam. And, and I know that the short-term solution people would say, well, why can't you just produce those products here? Uh, cost of labor and things like this are all factors into this, which is why I guess that supply chain works uh, as, as effectively as it did before the pandemic anyway. So how does this manifest itself now in, into we as consumers saying, hey, I want to be part of this recovery. I want to go and buy things uh, over the holiday season. I want to give gifts. I want to you know, put my money back into the economy and make the, the economy viable again. Uh, but if we don't have that choice, uh, what, what's that going to do to consumer spending? What's it going to do more importantly, I guess, to consumer confidence? Uh, yeah, so th- that's the problem. But before that, the point you made about this local supply chain, for certain, some small products, perhaps it is possible. But uh, again, uh, uh, the report that you made about the food, you, you cannot start producing some of this food, which is not possible to produce in Canada. You certainly cannot decide to start producing them in Canada. It, it is not possible because of the weather patterns. And mm-hmm. the same thing with some of the products. Some of the products are, you cannot decide, oh, I will start producing these semiconductors tomorrow. In It's not possible. Just like vaccines, it is not possible to produce in Canada. It is. It takes time. It takes capability. It takes uh, 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 labor, uh, the, uh, the, the expertise. And those things take a lot of time to develop. Um, in terms of the consumer side, I, I think... I, I do not think there will be a huge impact uh, uh, on the during the Christmas, uh, but uh, there will be some impact. Unfortunately, there will be some impact, and you will see. Perhaps my uh, prediction is that you will see much more uh, 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 supply coming in January or so, and you will see that maybe this Christmas shopping has to be delayed a bit uh, towards January and so on, basically, because well, it will take one or two months to the supply chains to. Uh, 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 come to a more normal state and maybe the supply chains will uh, go to a bit more uh, better state sometime in mid-January, end January. And, but a lot of us, I guess, have already developed those habits. Haven't we figured, hey, you know what, the prices are, are actually going to go down after Christmas and so maybe we'll wait. Uh, and Because and we always talk about the sales then because January, February has traditionally uh, been a, 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 an uneventful time for consumer spending, hasn't it? I mean, we're usually spent yeah. out because of the holidays. So I guess you're, you're suggesting it's still going to happen. It just might happen a few weeks later than than we're anticipating it's going to happen. Yes, indeed. Uh, you are absolutely right. From Christmas, uh, uh, there is nothing, no event, uh, let's say, until all, maybe a bit on Valentine's Day and then uh, Easter. So there is not much things. And But I have a feeling that there will be, and also there were there are some um, there are some suggestions in the uh, 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 trade uh, magazines that people, uh, many of the companies, because they were worried about supply, they have ordered too much in order to get the supply. And th- once they get, there will be a maybe a somewhat of a glut in inventory uh, come after the Christmas. Uh, so there might be more opportunity of getting deals after Christmas in January, uh, January February than during Christmas, where Perhaps the deals will be, even for Black Friday and so we'll see, uh, uh, perhaps the deals will be a bit less than the other years. And I know that, you know, big ticket items like automobiles, for instance, I mean, that's just, that's just going to take time to ramp that business up again, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that, that, that's the problem. I mean, like automobile is a big problem, as we have seen a lot in the Canadian context also. Uh, that's a big problem because uh, those things you cannot miss. Like, it, it, it takes a huge amount of time to crank up those uh, machines. So uh, that that will take a bit of time, absolutely. 
and, and I know that some governments have tried to be proactive on this, and you, you've seen the announcements, of course, about uh, the Ontario government and the federal government talking about you know their commitment to electronic vehicles and, and maybe even battery production uh, with some of the mineral uh, riches that we have in northern Ontario. Uh, but realistically, Professor, that's, that's years away. That's not going to happen next week, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. That would take a huge amount of time. And uh, remember, uh, the next one of the biggest next competition will be about this EV. So it's not only Canada, every country will uh, go towards this EV competition. So there and it, it will take a lot of time. It's not easy uh, battery production and to have this IP and all. It, it, it will take a significant amount of time uh, before those things come online. Well, I guess we just, as, as consumers and as shoppers now, are just going to have to be more diligent and start looking for the, the deals and the product there. It's out there. We just have to make, look a little harder this time around. Uh, I, I thank you so much for your time today, Professor, to add some perspective on this. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Bill, for having me. Take care. Professor Sibyl Ray from uh, McGill University explaining supply chain situations. And it, it might be a little dicey, but as we were talking about last week with uh, some of the folks that are actually involved in that supply chain, uh, for instance, you want to buy a TV uh, and you like brands, well, Sony, they pick one out of the air. You may not get the Sony you want, but there's going to be LG TVs and there's going to be other ones there too. So, uh, you know, you may have to switch loyalty, brand loyalty, but there's still going to be some product out there. And uh, as we know, of course, retailers are really, really looking for we as consumers to, to start spending some money. So we'll have to look around and do what you need to do. The official start of the, uh, the Christmas buying season uh, for our American friends, of course, is, well, Black Friday, which is the end of this week. And you can see all the Black Friday sales that are going on here on this side of the border as well to try to encourage folks. So uh, pay attention and uh, you can find some bargains for the uh, the gift giving season. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Restrictions slowly but surely being lifted here as we try to move towards the light at the end of the tunnel and the end of COVID and pandemics. Although the numbers here in Ontario are still, uh, well, concerning as we saw the number of new cases that have been announced for today. It's still on the seven-day average on the increase. But, but it's a different ballgame now. I mean, there's vaccination available. There's, uh, I think, much more knowledge about what's going on. And and the travel industry is saying, hey, look at there are precautions you can take here. It's safe to travel. But Canadians seem to be very apprehensive about this for a variety of reasons, I guess. Some legitimate, maybe some not so legitimate. But it's if there's an ingrained concern and fear, uh, it's going to have a negative impact. So what do we do? Well, we're going to try to get to the truth of this as to what's going on. And uh, to do that and to have that conversation, we're so pleased to welcome uh, Frederick Dimash, who is the director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at uh, Ryerson University. Uh, Frederick, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. You're welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Do you get the sense that uh, the Canadians especially are, are apprehensive about this? Well, you know, we, we've talked about travel and we've talked about uh, the precautions that are in place right now. Uh, we're not in the same place we were a year and a half ago when there was some legitimate concerns about travel. Uh, yet notwithstanding the fact that vaccination rates are, are in pretty good shape here in Canada and, and we know about PPE and things of this nature, why the apprehension about travel? It, it just seems to be something that, that we're not getting over yet. No, we're not getting over it. And and it's it takes time. You know, it's taken 18 months for us to be in the situation today. For 18 months, we have been told to be careful. We have been told to stay at home. We have been told not to travel. We have been told that the borders were closed. We have been told that we should quarantine if we travel, et cetera, et cetera. So 
all of those messages, when you accumulate them, uh, you know, tend to to give us a sense of insecurity, of course. And so now we, the pendulum have to swing the other way, and there is a lot of momentum with this pendulum. And uh, it takes time for people to to get um, you know comfortable again, not only with the idea of travel, but also with the idea of going back to work. You know that some people are mm-hmm. not feeling comfortable yet about going back to the office. Well. What about the mixed messaging? Because we've talked about this on our program, I guess, for about a year and a half now, uh, that there there is medical expertise and there are political policies. And sometimes the two uh, seem to be counterproductive. And, and the messaging is still out there. I mean, you, you probably remember, I, I certainly do, uh, you know, it was less than a year ago, I guess, that the premier here in Ontario was you know, saying, you know, we want to stop all these flights coming from other places because those people are all bringing COVID in here. Uh, even though there were no numbers to substantiate that, but that's that becomes part of the, the mindset and part of the psyche, I guess. Absolutely. So they, you know, there have been some political messages and there have been some media uh, messages, the news media messages, you know, that that have, you know put a strain on people, you know, in their ability to understand the situation. So I know it's it's been a, a very complex situation from the very beginning, but not now we, we know that there is a very high vaccination rate, actually one of the best uh, in the world, to say the truth. We know that, um, you know, travel is not dangerous. We know the travel sector has put in a lot of efforts, you know, to make sure that they have procedures, you know, to protect the travelers. And and now we have to be vaccinated even to take a train within Canada or a plane within Canada. So, you know, the, the reasons for, for fears are, are, are slowly coming down. And, and I think people have to to look at risk from a different perspective. You know, there, there is always a risk. Uh, there is always going to be a risk of COVID now. I think we have to, to, to live with it. But in the same way that there are many other risks that we live with every day. And and how do you assuage those concerns, though? I mean, is, is it really the old idea of getting back up on the horse? I mean, do we just have to actually do it and say, "Hey, okay, this is this is okay." I know some people won't even, they haven't even been near an airport since this whole thing started. I know other people that have traveled a fair bit through business and other purposes, and they say, "Look, as long as you do what you're supposed to do, uh, you're going to be fine." I mean, as you say, there's no such thing as zero risk of anything, but. Uh, the risk that, that we perceive that, that is there as opposed to the risk that's actually there uh, seems to be a, a, a huge gap there. Absolutely. And and so, you know, in the past few few weeks and months, I've traveled. Just last week, I was in Ottawa. I went to, uh, from Toronto to Ottawa and back by train. And some people are concerned and they say, oh, my goodness, you know, you're going to be spending five hours in the train. Yes, but during those five hours, everybody's masked. Everybody's sitting on their seat. There is very little interaction between travelers. Um, and and I know for a fact that everybody in the train is vaccinated. So once you step on that train, um, you know, you will realize that. Uh, in, in fact, you know, you have a pleasant experience and, and you know, you read your book and you work on your computer dur- during the, the trip and, and it's, it's going to be fine. You know, there is nobody who is there to threaten you. And, and, and again, the travel professionals, whether it's via rail or the airports or the airlines, are doing a fantastic job in testing people. And what I mean by testing is checking, you know, the vaccination record and making sure that people go slowly and board early into the train or the plane. So all those measures are there to reassure us and, and to make sure that um, traveling is not dangerous. And I know from talking to people that have traveled uh, extensively, uh, 
that uh, the airlines themselves and the airport, for that matter, are very diligent about making sure that the the protocols are being followed. I mean, you know, if you're not wearing a mask, they'll remind you to put the mask back up and over your nose. Uh, the the vaccination records, uh, you know, you don't get on a, a, a train or a plane unless you have proof of vaccination. That's all there is to it. Uh, and and that's that's really, I think, one of the things that, uh, and I suppose one of the tactics that's absolutely necessary, isn't it, Frederick, to to basically dispel the fears and say, if you follow everything, and if the person who's on their, that plane or train with you uh, is also following those protocols, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable about it. Absolutely. And, and you have to feel comfortable, not only because the other people are following the procedures, but also because you yourself are following the procedures. You keep wearing a mask, you keep paying attention to, to washing your hands, you keep paying attention not to be interacting very closely without a mask and talking to, to someone. So, and, and by the way, you do this not only as you travel, but also in the destination that you are going to. It's not because you're going somewhere else, whether it's for business, on vacation, visiting family, that you should let your guards down. We are still in a pandemic. We still have to be careful. But once again, the risk is coming down significantly. It's becoming minimal. And, and I know sometimes we have to, I guess, put things in proper perspective. I know that uh, when they were discouraging us from traveling, and that's going back, well, you know, to the, basically all through the year 2020, uh, and they'd, they'd show pictures of crowded beaches down in Florida and say, don't do that. But there was no vaccine then. And that, that was the that was the problem. That was the concern because we knew that vaccination rates, well, they were non-existent because we hadn't developed it and the, the, the protocol wasn't in place. Uh, but as we've talked about with the medical experts, I guess, Frederick, we know more about this now. And I don't. I don't ever want to get to the point, I don't think you've suggested nor anyone else has suggested that we just throw caution to the wind, everything's going to be fine. Uh, it's We know what the rules are, we know what we have to do. It's like, it's like when you get behind the wheel of a car, you know that putting the seatbelt on is going to reduce the, the chances of getting injured if there's going to be a problem. It doesn't eliminate them totally, but it's going to be a, a, a mitigating factor. Well, now we've got that for travel now too, don't we? That's exactly right. And, and and I think people have to put risk into perspective and compare the risk of traveling to some other risk. You talked about traveling. Let's remember that uh, I'm not sure what are the data today, but uh, two or three years ago, about 2,500 Canadians died on the roads in car accidents. So that's a risk that we have to take into consideration every time we drive or, you know, for people who are biking, you know, going to work in the morning, you know, they have that risk to consider as well. And and I can assure you that that the risk of, of many um, uh, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, et cetera, are much higher than the risk of dying with uh, COVID at the moment. We listen to governments, though, and we've certainly listened to our medical uh, experts uh, when it comes to what we should be doing. And, and they're the ones that help us to establish the masking protocols and things of this nature. But government policy plays a role in this, too. Have have governments been too cautious in, in situations like this? And have they actually uh, maybe unwittingly uh, presented deterrence to people that might have even considered that maybe it's time to get to travel again and get back on that horse? Well, you, you can't reproach a government to be too cautious. I, I think that's their role. And their role is to protect us and, and to make sure that they have enough information before they, they reopen the doors, basically, and literally. And this is what the Canadian government has been doing. They have reopened the border much later than many other governments. 
later than uh, all the Europeans who reopened the border in June, for example, uh, uh, last spring, right? So, um, you know, indeed, the, the Canadian government has been very cautious. We can, we can, um, you know, we cannot reproach it to them, I don't believe. But, but now that things are better, I wish they would come out to say, you know, look, you know, we have been cautious and, and, and now it's time for you to start living again. Because, it's, you know, I have to, 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 to say um, a word about this. I, I think it's unhealthy for people to stay at home and not see anyone. I know of families who don't see each other. I know kids, you know, who have not seen their grandparents for a long, long time. Um, all of this is affecting us and our mental health as well. Uh, we have to interact. We have to socialize. Uh, and, but we're going to take our lead from the government. I know that two elements that, uh, that a lot of people were concerned about uh, have finally been addressed by the government. One, of course, is is the idea of of testing uh, before you even get on the plane and testing after a short period when you get back. Uh, expensive, time consuming, and I, I I'm not suggesting that you know we we don't want to be cautious. We do, but it seemed that, that even the medical experts were saying some of those policies might have been a little over the top, and the government seems to have reconsidered that, and that that's got to be helpful. It is helpful. It, it is definitely a barrier. But but again, it's it's a way for the government to say, look, you know, you're allowed to travel, you know, you are vaccinated, you can travel. But yet there is another barrier. And that barrier is is in the mind of people, uh, a reason enough to say, well, I'm not going to be traveling, you know, it's going to be too expensive, or if they require a test is because there is some danger still, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, I think little by little, we, we're going to see those restrictions, you know, come down. Um, but again, as you said earlier, I think it's very clear that that no matter what, we are still in a state of pandemic and it's up to people and their own behavior to be very rigorous, more than a, a, about any regulations. It's up to us, you know, to continue to wear masks and be careful when we interact with other people. And and the, the industry itself, I guess, Frederick, they're, they're tracking this, aren't they? You know, because when the most important piece of of, of information that we get here is the data about where this is happening and if there is going to be an, an increase in the number of cases where is this occurring and you know in the absence of that data of course well maybe it's because people are traveling we now know that if you if, as you say if you take the, the proper precautions uh the chances have been minimalized to a great extent uh, there are still new cases but it could be in schools it could be in a number of other places uh, there's a number of different factors that could be causing them, but travel doesn't seem to be anywhere near the top of that list. And that, that should, I think, add some comfort to people. Yeah, that should definitely help people make some decisions about traveling again. Um, you know, we've known that already for months. You know, you mentioned earlier uh, Premier Ford, you know, saying that he wanted to prevent uh, all flights, you know, from coming into Ontario. And 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 we knew then already that it was not the right uh, the right thing to say or the right thing to do for sure. So, um, you know, community spread, uh, you know, and, and there are many conditions that led to those community spreads were much more important at that time and continue to be more important today than uh, than travel. So it's it's about risk assessment. Once again, it's about understanding, you know, the reason why you travel, you know, uh, the government continues to say, you know, travel for essential reasons. Uh, I'm not sure what essential means for all of us. You know, it means different things. But to me, I have to tell you, it's essential for me that I go and see my parents, um, mm-hmm. you know, who are in their 80s. You know, it's, it's important for me to do that. It's essential for them, uh, I, I would believe. So, you know, it, it's, it's a judgment call for all of us. But um, but again, if we look at the stats, uh, you know, travel is not a, a, a risky uh, activity to do. 
and and as you say, very necessary. We look at things like vaccination rates, and I guess one of the barometers that we could look at is probably going to be happening. I would think over the next couple of days, uh, south of the border, isn't it really, Frederick? I mean, this is the American Thanksgiving, uh, and traditionally, that's this is the busiest travel weekend of the year for them. Not Christmas, not Easter, but this yep. Thanksgiving weekend, where people start their holidays and start traveling, as you mentioned, to go and see family. Uh, and, and they're doing this in spite of the fact that their vaccination le- levels are, are much lower than we have here in Canada. Uh, yet they mm-hmm. seem to have, have rationalized it and say, no, this is going to be okay as long as we take all the precautions, the masking and things of this nature that, uh, that go on in airports and, of course, on the planes and trains themselves. Uh, so what we have to do here, I guess, is believe in the science and, and say, Absolutely. look, at, you know, yeah. if, as long as we do this, uh, then, then we're going to feel safe. Absolutely. It's about believing in the science and also uh, understanding what kind of data are important to follow. Um, You know, yes, there are some people who are, uh, you know, getting COVID, I mean, getting infected with with the virus. Do they get sick? Not necessarily. Do they go to the hospital? Not necessarily. Why? Because they are vaccinated. And that's the main point. Most of us are being vaccinated. And there is a number of, of, um, you know, COVID infections that are asymptomatic, as we know, or that are going to be lighter because we are vaccinated. And that's the bottom line. It's if we are vaccinated, it's not as dangerous as it was a year ago. And that's the big change that took place in the past 12 months. Well, I mean, I, I can go to the grocery store this afternoon and, and you know, feel safe, I guess, because I'm going to be masked and I'm going to do what I can about social distancing. Uh, but there's no proof of vaccination. I mean, the person that's in that aisle with me may not be vaccinated. They may have a mask, et cetera, but we don't know that. And so, you know, there's still a, an element of concern there. But yeah. if I want to get on a plane, I know that everybody on that plane has shown proof of vaccination. Just as, you know, I go to a football game, you know, the playoff game here in Hamilton this weekend. Uh, everybody in that stadium is going to be double vaccinated or they're not going to be there. And that, I think people feel much more comfortable in that situation. And we seem to have overcome the idea of, of crowds now because of that. Well, you know, we can see attendance at football and hockey games uh, is is rising almost on a weekly basis, almost back to where it was normally. So we're over that barrier. But the travel barrier, we just seem to still have a stigma. And I, I know it's going to go over time. People are going to get a lot more comfortable with it. But I think we have to have these discussions uh, to let them know. I mean, if you feel safe going to a football or a hockey game, uh, you should feel safe getting on a plane too. Absolutely. I, I entirely agree with you. And and uh, you're absolutely right, actually. I, I told you I was traveling last week to, to go to Ottawa by train. I actually feel a lot safer in a train than I do, you know, when I go grocery, uh, grocery shopping for exactly the reason that you say. I don't know if everybody around me at the grocery shop have been vaccinated or, or are paying attention to, um, you know, to, to protecting themselves. Whereas I know that in a train or in a plane, you know, everybody is vaccinated. And, and that's very comforting for, for for me and it should be for any traveler have the industry themselves been keeping up on this in other words making sure that for instance staff uh, not just at the airport but of course within the airlines or on the on the rail lines uh, that they are adhering to this and they're reminding uh, passengers and consumers uh, that they they have to be diligent about this you know wearing the mask and things of this nature I can tell you for sure, you know, th- there was an announcement in the train last week and they, it was very nice and, and clearly said, but, you know, they said, you know, if you don't wear your mask, you know, you're going to be reminded to do it. And if you don't want to wear your mask, you're going to be stopped at the next station and you will be asked to to, to go down. So, you know, and, and, and we know that everybody in the industry is making some effort. It's not easy to to 
you know, bring everybody on the same line and, and to request from everyone that they wear masks because, you know, you have to admit, you know, sometimes it's a pain, if, especially if you do a long flight or a long train ride. But uh, nonetheless, we have to do it. And, and that's our, it's our social responsibility, right? We cannot be egoistic about this. We, we have to be uh, cognizant of the fact that, that some other people are, are mindful, are careful, are worried about this. Um, and, and if everybody's playing their part, then all travel will become even safer. Well, we'll uh, watch the data uh, over the next couple of weeks as we head toward the holiday season and uh, we'll see just what numbers are, are going to be presenting themselves there. Well, that's obviously going to be a reflection on uh, the confidence levels. Uh, Frederick, a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. I really appreciate you bringing this issue uh, forward and, and, and talking about it. I think it's really important. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you, Frederick. Frederick Dimash, director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism at Ryerson University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.